evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this is our fifth le lecture of the year now. It's a bit unusual. We never have one in May, but we're, we're trying it out this year. Uh, and a big welcome now to Finn Dwyer, who's going to speak to us about the Black Death, with particular reference to County Carlow. Finn is an archaeologist, historian, and author. His books are Witches, Spies, and Stockholm Stiller Syndrome, and. Uh, uh, 1348, a medieval apocalypse. Uh, so, without any further ado, I'll ask Finn to enlighten us about the Black Death. Thanks very much. Uh, yeah, thanks very much to everyone in the Carlo Historical and Archaeology Society for inviting me here tonight. It's great to get a chance to talk about well, it's probably a bit of a drum topic, but something I find absolutely fascinating and I think is a really interesting topic, not just for people interested in medieval history, but history in general. It's a story about a society that faced almost total collapse. As we're going to see in the course of the talk, about in and around 50% of the population die in the space of six months. And what I'm going to look at is what happens. How do people react to this? So over the course of the night, we're going to journey back to 1348, not literally, about one and two of us to get out of the room, if that was the case, but we're going to do, uh, so first I'm going to start off with a portrayal of what society was like just before the Black Death, because this is a very important feature about what happened, or this features very heavily in what happens when the plague breaks out, and obviously medieval society in Ireland was very different to what it is today. Then I'm going to look at what the disease itself was like, and then I'm going to finish up by looking at the consequences of the Black Death, which were considerable, to say the least. Um, so to begin, I guess this is going to be a story of change, if, if it's a story of anything else, and it's a story of change in Anglo-Norman Ireland. That's the society that emerged after the Norman invasion. And to give you some sense of that, one of the first uh, Normans ever to land in Ireland was a man called Robert Fitzstephen. A bit of a retrobate in some, society, in some eyes, a man who spent more, a lot of his life in prison but uh, became one of the most prominent Normans in Ireland. And he said towards the end of his life that the sovereignty of the whole kingdom is forever preserved for us and our descendants. Um, Robert Fitzstephen clearly thought that Ireland was going to become a Norman country. Now, if you're a betting man around... Uh, around oh, technological failure. Yep, here we go. Uh, if you're a betting man or woman around 1250, you would um, be thinking that Robert Fitzstephen was on course, or he was correct... If you look at, uh, for example, most of, most of the island, sorry, I'm getting used to this technology, um, most of the island was in the hands of uh, the Normans. There's a, about a, a quarter in the northwest where the O'Neill family in Western Ulster, there's a small pocket in Leinster in the Wicklow Mountains, there's the Sri Bloom Mountains in the Midlands, and um, there's the far southwest. The rest of the lands in, uh, in Ireland are under the control of the Normans. Um, however, by the year 1393, things had changed and changed drastically. Um, for example, in Carlo, once one of the great successes of the Norman invasion, one of the biggest towns they built and one of the most successful towns they built was on the verge of collapse. There's reports from the 1390s about emigration that cannot be stopped and the colonists in Carlo are, are very worried that there is actually no future in Ireland. So today's story is how do you get from a society where the Normans look like they're going to conquer the entire island to being barely able to hang on. So I'm going to start at the beginning. It's a good place to start, I suppose. And to look at Carlo after the Norman invasion. So the story of Carlo, I guess, begins with 
first of all, uh, the most famous of all the Normans, that's Strongbow. Uh, Strongbow formed, or Strongbow's personal possessions in Ireland was the Lordship of Leinster, and Carlo was a key part of the Lordship of Leinster. Um, Strongbow and his heir, a man called William Marshall, developed Carlo and built, when I talk about Carlo, sorry, I should say that I'm also talking about the surrounding area, so I'm going to talk a bit about Kilkenny. Basically, the area of land in the, um, around the Barrow Valley. That the Barrow Valley is the thing that draws the Normans to here, so it's good to look at it from that perspective. But uh, they build a series of settlements, obviously Carlow, another very important town is New Ross. New Ross is, uh, has, is the biggest port in Ireland during the Middle Ages, um, and certainly pays the most taxes. Uh, St. Mullins, I'm going to talk a bit about St. Mullins. Obviously you have Kilkenny, Goran, um, and then Lachlan Bridge. Lachlan Bridge is important because it's a key crossing point over the River Barrow. Um, Carlo is owned, uh, or the Lordship of Carlo is in the possession of Strongbow, then his son, um, or his son-in-law rather, William Marshall. And then in 1247, you have a very strange uh, series of uh, coincidences where uh, five of William Marshall's sons, they're all adult men, obviously, and his heirs, all die without having an heir themselves. And this sees the Lordship of Leinster broken up into several uh, plots between uh, the, other, the daughters of the family. So Carlo becomes an independent lordship of such, and it's the biggest family who rule Carlo for the following 60, 70 years, or about 60 years until 1306. And they're pretty good, effective overlords of the region. They send over, they don't live in Ireland, but they do send, um, they do send very effective administrators to run Carlo. And the entire region is pretty successful up until the late uh, 13th century. And just to give a bit of background as well, Carlo obviously is... Um, part of a much wider Norman project in Ireland. Uh, this is Norman Ireland around the year 1330. Um, so we have Kilkenny, Carlow's not marked on the map obviously, but it's on the River Barrow. New Ross is a major, uh, very important port. The big families in the region are the Butler family, of the Butlers of Ormond, who would later go to live in Kilkenny Castle, and uh, the Fitzgerald families of uh, the future Earls of Kildare. The most important family are the de Burgh or Burke family. They're the uh, Earls of Ulster and Lords of Connacht, and they own about or control about 50% of the Norman colony. Um, and the defence of that 50% falls to this family. Then the final major family are the Fitzthomas Earls of Desmond. But they're the major players in Norman society. Um, the key event that happens in this, in this society in, um, from about 1270 onwards, Northern Ireland has a certain degree, it has a crisis, or I guess if, we, if you were to read a newspaper they might talk about a crisis from, uh, 13, from about 1270 onwards, but it's not that serious. There's an increase in lawlessness, there's um, an increase in Gaelic-Irish attacks which had really been non-existent, and this affects Carlo because these Gaelic-Irish attacks are coming from the uh, Wicklow Mountains and the Schlieve Bloom Mountains, but it's not that serious. The decisive moment comes in 1315 when uh, Ireland su uh, suffers, and this is a key story in what is an, becomes an unfolding apocalypse in Ireland. In 1315, Ireland suffers the, a triple crisis, after which it's almost impossible to recover, I would argue. So in 1315, um, the Scots, first of all, invade uh, Ulster. The Scot a Scottish army led by the brother of Robert the Bruce invades eastern Ulster in the summer of 1315 and basically ensconced themselves there 
Over the following three years, they invade four times south into the Norman colony, as far as they reach as far south as Tipperary and as far west as Limerick, devastating huge tracts of territory. They don't hold territory, but they do destroy several towns. The worst affected region is between uh, Drogheda and Dundalk, and then the earldom of Ulster is absolutely devastated to the extent that Carrickfergus is said after the war that ends in 1318 needs to get new settlers in from England. Um, now, if this is not bad enough, uh, a famine breaks out in these three years as well. This famine is the worst famine of the Middle Ages. It's caused by successive uh, poor harvests. Uh, by 1317, the price of wheat, it's a good measure in, in, in any economy, but particularly in the medieval economy, has reached six times its normal price at 24 shillings a cranach. It's usually in around 20, or it's in around four. A cranach is a medieval <coughs> unit of measure. Um, between these two, uh, between this war, I should say as well, this war also triggers a series of major revolts among Gaelic Irish families. These are people who've been alienated by the Normans. And you get a series of major revolts. Uh, the wor- largest is in Connacht, where the O'Connor family rise up. You have one in the Wicklow Mountains and one in the Shreve Bloom Mountains and then in the far southwest. But by 1318, after the Scots have been defeated eventually and the famine subsides, you're probably talking about 20% of the population has died in these three years. We can't be certain, but it's generally considered that in England, about 15% of the population died and they didn't suffer under the weight of war. Um, to make matters even worse still, it's like even worse, even worse, but to make matters even worse still, in 1321, rinderpest breaks out. Now, rinderpest is a virus that affects cattle. A rinderpest breaks out and wipes out huge uh, amounts of cattle in Ireland. Now, this has a really big impact on people. First of all, there's no dairy in the medieval diet um, anymore. That, is, this, that disappears. Land, we know that land, for example, at Dushgabi, down in, uh, on the west bank of the Barrow, becomes valueless because they can't find animals to actually put on the land and it has no value anymore. Um, on top of that, though, at harvest time, people, because there's no beast of burden, the beast of burden in the Middle Ages is often oxen, and there's no beast of burden because they've also been killed in the Rinderpest fires, people actually have to pull on the halter and pull plows themselves. So basically, by 1324, you have a society that's been heavily uh, ravaged by famine, war, and then this um, crisis in dairy. They're not eating meat or dairy. So you have a whole generation who've been born after 1315 who don't have, who've spent the early formative years of their life um, trying to um, survive. They're not, their immune systems are permanently compromised. In uh, this, obviously, when something like this happens in society, and we know any crisis creates instability. And the instability that follows this is really unpleasant. Uh, there's a big revolt in Dublin, for example, in 1317. In 1324, uh, the first witchcraft trial of the Middle Ages happens with the execution of a woman, uh, Petronella de Medea, who's burned at the stake for witchcraft. Now, I think this is actually directly related to this crisis. People are desperate. They want answers to why their lives have become so difficult so quickly. And uh, someone accuses somebody else of being a witch, and that makes sense. Uh, it makes sense in that context. It actually makes sense. But uh, uh, The most serious fallout though, of this instability is the assassination in 1333 of the Earl of Ulster, William Burke, which takes place uh, just outside Carrickfergus. This man is only 21, but because it's the Middle Ages, he happens to be the most powerful man in Ireland. When he's assassinated by members of his own family, the Burke family, who are the Earls of Ulster and Lords of Connacht, go to war against each other, and basically, the most powerful family in Ireland more or less disappear overnight. 
A huge swathe of territory now falls under the control of Gaelic Irish families, raids across the colonies soar. Uh, to make matters worse, the central government more or less com- collapses in this period. I should say this is all before we get to the actual apocalypse. Uh, things are pretty bad, though. Uh, the central government disappears. The powerful families such as the Butlers, the Fitzgeralds, and the Earls of Desmond step into the vacuum to try and fill the vacuum that now emerges, and that just results in more increased warfare between these families. So basically, by 1348, you have a society where it's not a pleasant place to live. Violence is really common. Famine is frequent. Um, the idea of stability is long gone. What the future is for Ireland, no one really knows. Um, it's, there's frequently letters written to the King in England saying that they don't know if the Norman colonists in Ireland can survive. Certainly by 1341, there's serious doubts because of the scale of Gaelic revolt and just the difficulties of day-to-day life in Ireland at this point. Ireland, more or less at this point, is, I guess, what we would call today a failed state. Um, there's no central authority, really, that can function or wield power. Individual warlords have the power, and they exercise that power. Um, whether it's retrievable is a debatable point. I would certainly argue, after 1348, which I'm going to move on to now, it certainly wasn't. So in 1348, the greatest killer, in one of the greatest killers, I should say, in recorded human history, arrives in Ireland, and that is... Uh, the Black Death. The Black Death begins in Europe in, um, in biological warfare, actually. It's quite a, an interesting story. On the Black Sea, uh, up here, the Mongols, uh, the descendants of Genghis Khan, are besieging a port on the Black Sea called Kaffa. Uh, in the, the Black Death, which is, originates in China, broke out in the Mongol army camps. The Mongols are decimated. They know they can't, win, or they can't emerge victorious in that siege. So as a last throw the dice, they put infected corpses into catapults, throw them over the walls of Kaffa, and infect the town. Now, unfortunately for everyone across Europe, uh, there happens to be Genoese merchants in Kaffa at this stage. They leave Kaffa, uh, heading to Constantinople, but unfortunately before they leave, the crews are infected. So by the summer, this is in the summer, or in the, the late, in December 1347, the Black Death breaks out in one of the uh, most famous cities in Europe at the time, the old capital of the Roman Empire, Constantinople. It also reaches into the Western Mediterranean with traders, um, the ports of Genoa, Naples, and Marseille. Interestingly, there's a massive battle, or not a massive, but a large battle fought in the harbour of Genoa to try and stop the plague breaking out. The people in Genoa find out that there's, uh, uh, the plague has infected some of the ships, and they attack those ships to drive them out of the harbour doesn't matter that the plague eventually reaches uh, Genoa anyway. Um, there's literally no one that can stop this. This plague though, terrifies people in medieval Europe. 50% of the population die and they die really quickly in six months. Also, this disease spreads really fast. So the Rinderpest virus that I mentioned earlier on had spread from Eastern Europe to Ireland. It took it about three or four years. The Black Death spread from Kaffa in the Black Sea to uh, uh, to the Western Mediterranean by 1347, and then it reached Normandy, the ancestral home of the Normans in Ireland, by 1348. And when it reached Normandy, all the towns that were infected started to hang black flags from the church steeples to try and t- warn people away and warn them that the plague had broken out. It did little good. Once the plague, though, reaches Normandy, it's inevitably going to reach London, which it does, or the south of England, which it does in the summer of 1348, and Ireland. Plague reaches Dublin and Drogheda around the same time, breaking out in uh, August 1348. 
Now, the ports of Dublin and Drogheda are perfect breeding ground if you're the plague, and it's a disaster if you're not, if you're a human being. The streets are narrow and dirty. The, uh, your average street might only be as wide as, I don't know, the car, you know, you're talking two, three metres less, two metres at most. Um, there is dirt piled up in the street. We know from contemporary accounts, for example, the basics of human sanitation that we know today simply didn't take place. So, for example, in Kilkenny in 1337, they had to bring out an edict telling merchants not to wash the intestines of animals in the public fountains. This is, people just don't understand how disease spreads, but obviously, in a, where you're facing something like the Black Death, this is a huge problem. So the disease breaks out and very quickly spreads in the hinterland of Dublin and Drogheda in 1348 to in, in the summer of 1348. It probably kills about 50% of the population in the space of six months. Now the disease is absolutely, I should say at this point, Kilkenny and Carlow, which I'm going to talk about in a bit, are, are, a, um, are, not, are not infected. So the disease breaks out in Dublin first, but because of the lawlessness, there's no, it's very difficult for anyone to travel overland from Dublin to Kilkenny. So there's a natural barrier there that war essentially protects these towns. It doesn't protect them forever. But first I want to talk about what it's actually like when the plague breaks out. So patients generally, from contemporary accounts, got very vague symptoms like a tingling sensation is what they called it. That could be anything. You'd never know. You could hope against hope that it might just be a cold. Generally then, the next stage is a real um, classic case of what bubonic plague is. You get swellings under the arms, in the groin, sometimes on the shin, or under the ear. And what these are, these are pus-filled swellings. They're extremely sore. These are the buboes that give the bubonic plague its name. The bubonic plague will kill in about five to seven days, killing about 50 to 80% of the population who would get infected. Not everyone dies. There is worse strains of it, so it all originates from, one from a common bacteria, Yersinia pestis, which is in the fleas of, of rats. But it can, it can manifest itself in other ways. In urban areas, it developed into a pneumonic form. That's where the lungs get infected, the patient dies often coughing blood. It's coughing also the bacteria into the air, and this spreads then because other humans inhale it and they get infected. There's a third, sorry, I should say the pneumonic form will kill in about three days and it kills about 90% of people who contract it. There's a third form that pretty much kills everyone who gets it, is where the flea will bite directly into the bloodstream. That will kill in the number of hours. It's septicemic, uh, it's where your bloodstream is infected. It's a horrific thing, though, for people to watch because uh, patients become delirious, they, become, uh, they get terrible fevers, and obviously the swellings are pretty unsightly. Um, many people thought the end of the world had arrived. The end of the world had been predicted in human... Um, or in, sorry, in Christian scripture for, since it, it, it was in uh, the Old Testament obviously uh, this was something that meant an awful lot to people people fervently believed in it if you lived in Ireland in 1348 you'd already experienced war, you'd experienced famine and now disease was coming um, and the numbers that people were dying in 50% of the population that's one in every two people, whole households are, are taken away um, these deaths so that people suffer they're really, really unpleasant because death is always unpleasant but these are particularly unpleasant because they're lonely because immediately there's loads of uh, accounts that once the Black Death breaks out parents will abandon children wives will abandon husbands uh, children will abandon their parents because everyone knows that once the plague breaks out you are going to get affected if you help the poor this also means that priests 
don't go and tend to the dying. And this is a really important thing because if priests don't go and tend to the dying, you can't get final uh, absolution. And if you don't get final absolution, you're condemned for eternity. And these are very troubling things and in a way I think we would not be able to identify with today um, because medieval society even like, is far more religious than um, Ireland would have been even 50 years ago. Religion is like, omnipresent in society in a very different way than it ever was in the, in the modern world. Um, the level of people dying as well, or uh, the, the way people died is often you'd have a parent or a child gets infected and the entire household uh, dies. Panic uh, grips society obviously as well when this happens. People break down the normal uh, sensible things that people should do to stop. So people, for example, all business just stops. Uh, property, no, no one buys or sells property. The price of everything falls because everything's the end of the world. What do you care about the future? A lot of people stop working. This creates huge problems in the uh, long term. Of these human reactions, uh, the Florentine writer Giovanni Boccaccio wrote a very famous account of the Black Death, and he noted four different uh, uh, types of reaction, and these are um, pretty common across Europe, and you would have found them in Carlo, you would have found them in Dublin. Some people react with piety, they pray, they hope that God can save them. I'm going to come back to that, that was a very big thing in this area. Um, others struggle, but they hold it together. You get people who indulge in, uh, and basically party it up because they're on their way out, and you might as well have a good time before you go. And then there's the rich who will be able to withdraw from society. The best thing you can possibly do if the plague breaks out, uh, and uh, don't quote me on this, but I would imagine it's the best thing to do, is get out of the city. Cities are really dangerous places to be. And if you can re retreat to an, uh, a rural um, manor that you might own, you might be able to survive there. But that's something only the rich can do. Um, One of the most terrifying times of the, uh, when the plague breaks out is uh, before it actually arrives. So it broke out in Dublin in August 1348. But if you lived in Kilkenny and Carlow, you knew it had broken out. You knew it was killing thousands of people. But it, it just didn't show up. Like there was no, everyone expected it to arrive, and then it didn't. What happens then is that people uh, travel to uh, people travel to St Mullins. St Mullins becomes really important for people at this point. Uh, St. Mullins is a, is, uh, a well there dedicated to St. Mulling. Mulling is associated with health and healing. So people hope that they can go to St. Mullins. And you know, this is a desperate time. People hope that if they go a pilgrimage and they wade in the... I, I'm sure lots of you have been to St. Mullins and you know the well there. And that if people would wade in the waters... We know there's a, an account written about this, how thousands of people go to St. Mullins because in fear of the plague. Um, and this happens in September and October. The plague still doesn't arrive in the Barrow Valley or Kilkenny until uh, through November. And then, in what, like for a pe very Christian people, what must have been, what must have seemed like a complete uh, uh, abandonment by God, uh, the plague broke out in Kilkenny in and around Christmas Day. The first recorded victim of the plague in Kilkenny was on Christmas Day. We don't know exactly when it broke out in Carlow, but it's probably around the same time because the uh, because it doesn't travel over land. It's almost certain that the plague at this point reached uh, Kilkenny, Carlow, and this general region, not from Dublin, but probably from ships coming from England or the continent through the port of New Ross. Once New Ross is affected, uh, the entire Barrow and Nora Valleys are going to be affected. Um, once it takes hold in both these towns and the entire Barrow Valley, this is a really 
perfect area again for the plague, densely populated. You look at there, there's not much distance between any of the towns, um, and the same into West Kilkenny and Tipperary as well. So it can spread really quickly, and it does. Um, after a couple of weeks of the plague, you have a really basic problem. Hundreds and hundreds of bodies are piling up. What to do with these bodies becomes a huge problem. Uh, the sensible thing what people do is they dig huge pits and they start to bury the bodies. And one Italian chronicler talks about how this is like a human lasagna because they put a row of bodies down, then they put a row of soil over the bodies, they put another row of bodies down and another row of soil. It's likened to the layers of pasta and cheese. This, uh, this just reminds me of uh, Giovanni Boccaccio when he was writing about the plague. said that people develop this very dark sense of humour. I guess you just have to, like, is this thing of human survival that... You have to keep going. But um, more dark things that happen are um, because these are, are very rushed burials, dogs exhume bodies. And obviously, dogs are starving because humans aren't taking care of dogs. And dogs start to eat uh, corpses. In Kilkenny, it seems to be the pigs that are doing it because uh, in Kilkenny, they banned pigs from uh, the suburb of St. John's. And then, actually, in 1355, in Dunhamore in Navan they actually find pigs eating human bodies. This is obviously just adding to the sense of like the end of the world has approached. As I said, during the plague, uh, the price of everything just falls. No one cares. There's enough food and people are dying all the time. There's plenty of food. Um, in rural areas, a strange silence descends over the landscape because no one is caring for animals anymore. And um, chroniclers in England know how animals die in out-of-the-way places because there's no one going out to round up animals, to milk cows, all these things. The basic day-to-day life just stops. Now, it clearly wasn't the end of the world. Uh, we're all here, so... Uh, but it took about six months in rural areas, or sorry, six months in urban areas and nine months in rural areas to run its course. And then afterwards, people were faced with this uh, terrifying prospect. They had to rebuild a world that had been shattered. No one had worked for six or nine months. There's no food. Even though the population might have been halved, there's still not enough food for people to... Uh, Survive. So there's big food shortages and prices of food rise dramatically. Probably wasn't a famine, but it's a very serious food shortages. Um, one of the uh, straight, but in this situation, as the price of food and the essentials of life start to rise, um, you get a situation then where the poor uh, start to demand higher wages, and this is a really big shock for medieval society. Uh, medieval society was basically one where not things did change, but not a whole lot. And um, you want, oh, um, it was a society where uh, things didn't change, and then suddenly the poor are putting in for an increase in wages of about four. In England, it's claimed that these are uh, four times. Thanks very much. Sip of water. That wages rise four times as high. Um, the reaction of the wealthy initially is a bit chaotic, and this is partly because whole generations, whole, a whole layer of uh, leaders of towns and uh, villages across Ireland and England have been killed. So, for example, in Kilkenny, there's no mayor uh, survive. No previous mayor seems to survive the plague. The mayor of Kilkenny before the plague, a man called John Cross, seems to have died, and his predecessor as well, John or Thomas Fenn, also dies. So you get like, the reaction is uh, you get a chaotic period. Violent sores, robbery sore. Um, and um, one thing I will do is I'm going to come back though to that uh, social upheaval that follows the plague because um, what I'm going to do first is just to talk about um, warfare because that's the thing that affects Carlo more than um, any other part of the country. Um, I talked earlier about how 
Carlo had been um, surrounded on two sides by uh, Gaelic Irish rebels in the Sea Blue Mountains and Gaelic Irish rebels in the Wicklow Mountains. They hadn't always been rebels, but by the 1350s they definitely were. Um, they're already by the 1350s, say for example the O'Brennan family uh, from Catacomer are increasingly rising up against the Normans. The same situation in North Tipperary, the O'Kennedys. Um, Carlow at this stage is a pretty difficult place to live. It already was before the Black Death. Um, the O'Burns in particular are pushing down off the Wicklow Mountains and starting to drive out Norman families. Um, for example, in the O'Nolans, the same, take, are taking back territory. This leads to really widespread warfare. Um, in the 1320s, a huge tract of South Carlow is destroyed by the Norman Earl of uh, Ormond, who is uh, seeking vengeance for his, murder bro- for his murdered brother, who was killed by the O'Nolans. That's day daylight, but uh, in the aftermath of the Black Death, things get considerably worse, because it's a, it's a curious fact of it, and no one fully understands why, the Gaelic Irish, they're the descendants of the people who lived in Ireland pro- previous to the Normans, uh, suffer far less. So the Normans probably, you know, somewhere between 30 and 50% of the population died. Among Gaelic Irish people, that percentage is way, way less. We don't know how less, but substantially less. The reason is probably because they live in inhospitable environments where the plague can't thrive. Also, uh, they live in rural dispersed settlements, so it's more difficult for the plague to move. Some people postulate that it's because of a higher uh, propensity to have an old blood group, which will give you greater immunity. I'm not, a, I'm not a biologist, so I can't really say. What I, what I can tell you is that after the Black Death, there is the military situation shifts very quickly uh, towards the Gaelic Irish, and Carlow becomes the centre of all this because the Norman colony over the previous 30 years, as I said, had been under attack, and it had more or less declined into a shape like this, where you've got a, uh, a, a piece of territory around between Dublin and Dundalk, and then you have more, uh, another stretch of territory between Wexford and Kerry, stretching up into North Tipperary. And then in between the two, the Upper Barrow Valley uh, is the connecting. But it's where the Gaelic Irish pinched this figure of eight shape. And from the early 1350s, the Gaelic Irish, the O'Moores in the Schlieve Bloom Mountains and the uh, McMurras leading uh, several families from the Wicklow Mountains start to close this gap. Now, if this happens to the Normans, it's a disaster because the Norman colony now is cut in two. But, um, so from about 1355, the Normans being led by James Butler, the Earl of Ormond, the, he's the second Earl of Ormond, start to literally throw as many men as possible across the River Barrow um, into Carlow to try and stop the Norman colony collapsing in Carlow. Uh, there's several big campaigns in 1355 and 1356 in response, what the Gaelic Irish do is they burn the bridges at Lachlan Bridge to try and seal off uh, Carlow. And this is a really, really desperate struggle for the Normans. Ultimately, by 1359, they seem to have lost control of the Barrow Valley, this stretch of territory here. James Butler becomes the king's representative in Ireland. One of the first things he would do as king's representative is summon all the colonists. But he has to do this in two places. There's one meeting in Dublin and one in Kilkenny because they can no longer meet in the same place. The reason this has happened is because of the Black Death. Obviously, uh, the Gaelic Irish are, have just a numerical advantage. Norman society is in collapse. To, to try and escape from this, the Normans start to adapt, ad- adopt radical measures. Um, so, for example, the person who does this best is James Butler, the Earl of Ormond. 
while he's facing attack from the Wicklow Mountains, he's also facing attack from right up at the family's own home at Nina Castle, from the O'Kennedy. And he decides he needs to do something. He can't fight a two-front war. So in 1356, he signs a series of agreements with the, um, with the O'Kennedys, the O'Brennans, um, and several families to his north, where he gives them pretty much what they want. He agrees a compromised legal system, which is completely illegal, but he has to do it. Um, and basically then, by 1359, he's able to turn these um, Gaelic Irish former enemies into allies and drive back the O'Moores and the McMurras from and clear a path again through the, uh, the Barrow Valley. But obviously this is not ideal. Society is just getting more and more violent and the Normans are really struggling. They take some temporary measures. So for example, in 1364, I'm sure you've heard of the Treasury of Ireland or the Exchequer of Ireland was moved to Carlow in 1364. The reason it's moved to Carlow is probably for this. By basically putting the Exchequer in Carlow, it means that huge amounts of resources will obviously be put into the region and the idea is that it, this might stop the collapse. Ultimately, it doesn't really. You end up, Carlo descends into a no man's land where the McMurras in the Wicklow Mountains claim what's known as a black rent. Black rent is where they, I suppose, a glorified extortion racket where you threaten not to burn half the county if people give you money. And uh, once the Normans decide to pay this out, you just keep coming back again and again and again. It's an easy way. You get the money without having to fight for it. Um, once, it, once this is paid out here, it starts to become more commonplace. Um, the Normans have struggled to do anything effective because they face another bigger problem. But I would argue, and this is probably the most interesting thing I've found in the course of the research. Um, so while the Normans, there's actually a good example, oh, sorry, I should have shown you this map, the Barrow Valley, so you have the O'Kennedys uh, above Nina, and there, uh, this is where the James Butler is able to rally Gaelic Irish allies. Um, uh, the bigger problem that the Normans face is internally in their own society. By, after 1348, with the price of everything rising, the poor demand higher wages. So what the Norman, or so what the king and the aristocracy decide they're going to do is um, bring in two. Uh, Statute. So there's the 1349 Ordinance of Labour and the 1351 Statute of Labour. And what this is, is basically an attempt to turn back the clock of time, to back to 1347. Wages will be the same as they were in 1347. Anyone above or anyone under 60 who's offered a job has to take it. This is in a world where most people die at 40. Like to be 60 and to be poor in the Middle Ages, you just, I don't think you could possibly work or you'd be very unusual. But the idea is that everyone has to take up work. And this um, is an attempt to swing back in favour, uh, swing things back in favour of the rich, that they can drive down wages. Whether it works or not is debatable, but certainly in the 1350s, uh, Norman society internally goes into a huge crisis. And we can see this because they start to bring in laws, and the rich and powerful bring in laws increasingly trying to control society. And it's a common enough reaction you can see throughout uh, early modern history as the powerful feel under threat, they bring in more uh, coercive laws. So, for example, laws are brought in against colonists speaking the Irish language. Laws are brought in banning intermarriage with Irish people, law of Gaelic Irish people. Gaelic Irish clothing is banned, and in 1366, quite famously in the Statutes of Kilkenny, they banned the game of hurling. That's probably not uh, the game of the Gaelic game of hurling, but it may actually be an English game of hurling. 
that is parallels for all these type of laws all across Europe at this time. And while some people say it's like to stop the Normans becoming Irish, I think it's probably more about trying to control Norman society, that they feel that everything is getting away from them, that like the poor putting in their demands, but they're also facing an even more serious situation, and that situation is emigration. It's something that I guess we all unfortunately know about is that there's a history in this island that when the life becomes increasingly difficult, you leave. And in the 1350s and 1360s, emigration becomes a really serious problem in the Norman colonies. In Carlow, there's numerous reports that appeals to the king saying that they can't keep the powerful merchants in their town. Or also, the poor don't want to live in Ireland. People are increasingly going back to England, back to Wales, where these are people that are maybe seven, eight generations earlier had come from these places. But life in Ireland is becoming intolerable. Huge amounts of legislation are brought in to ban this emigration. The statutes of the Kennys ban emigration. They don't really work, though. People are desperate. They need to leave Ireland. They want to leave Ireland. Um, so they effectively do. Um, this is a huge impact, though, or this is a, a very big impact in, in the sense that these tensions that I've talked about, about rising wages and the riches attempt to drive them back down, has huge, it has huge consequences elsewhere. So, for example, in Paris, there's a, a revolt, there's a revolt in Rouen, and then most famously, in 1381, there's a revolt of labourers in England where tens of thousands of labourers form into an army that's eventually defeated. None of this happens in Ireland because of emigration, I would argue. The people most likely to want to change are the people most likely to leave the country. Um, try and bring things to a conclusion then. Uh, in the aftermath of the Black Death, you have these two big problems of militarism, uh, the rise in warfare, and that the Norman colony has been hollowed out from the inside. By 1370, most, or most of the uh, contact back to England is about how they can't survive. They won't survive. They won't see out the century. Ultimately, they do. They do this by um, accommodating themselves. The big, powerful families, the butlers of Ormond, the uh, Fitzgeralds of Kildare, basically become independent powers. And they start to institute local laws with the Gaelic Irish that preserve their power um, ironically enough, it is at the expense of the central power. It, it's how Normans survive in Ireland and slowly become Anglo-Irish. Um, in terms of emigration and those tensions of the poor, it's not clear exactly what happens. Obviously, everyone doesn't leave. Um, but um, it's certainly the Black Death ends any hope of the Normans regaining their position. And also, more or less condemns Ireland to centuries of warfare because the central government has no power uh, to stop warfare, and as power passes into the hands of major families, those families um, increasingly, obviously when they move up on frontiers against each other, are likely to go to a war with each other. And this situation arguably lasts right into the 16th century, so 200 years after the Black Death, until you get a new reconquest of Ireland. So um, I guess I don't have a clean line to go, they all lived happily ever after, they certainly didn't. Um, but what I would say is that it was a tr transformative event. Um, if you are interested in this history, um, the book I've just uh, written is available at the back um, for 20 euros, and that focuses much more on seven or it's on eight lives of people who lived through this period. Some of them I've talked about, like uh, James Butler, um, his mother is another person. There's four men, four women, and it gives you a good sense of what life was like um, through this period. So that's available at the back. Um, but yeah, I'll leave it there. If anyone has any questions, I'd be more than happy to answer.
been that, that is there has been a very enlightening piece of. Uh, uh, I don't get a right to being around at that time. We'll do some questions and answers now. Uh, uh, please speak into the mic. Uh, John will go for you with the microphone. Anyone now want to ask any questions? Um, I just had a quick question on on how you actually go about doing your research for something like this, because I'd imagine it's either a case you can find no information or so much information. Where do you find your information? How do you actually filter that? Um, well, I, I guess I was going to talk about this to John actually beforehand. Um, and the first thing is that on Gaelic Ireland, there's no information that I. There is obviously there's the annals of the there's several series of annals, but the information in those is very scant. So like my book focuses a lot on um, day-to-day life and what, and the only place you can get that is from Norman sources. Now, Norman sources in Ireland are heavily impacted. Um, during the Civil War, most of the documents in relation to medieval Irish history were destroyed in the Battle of the Four Courts. Um, in recent years, a lot of work has been done on getting these documents, on reconstructing these documents from England. It's a great website called um, Cir- The Circle Project at Trinity College. Um, so you get some of it there. You get... Uh, you can get more information in kind of odd places. So, for example, um, material that was published before the destruction of the four courts where people had access to those original documents. Um, there's several um, books that were written then of sources that are obviously not the original sources, but they've been transcribed and translated. Um, it can be, though, it's not as easy as modern research because you don't have a central place to go to and find this. It can be all... Um, it can be quite spread out or it can be quite... Uh, Yes, spread out, I suppose the word. And um, on top of that, you can find periods where, or people where there's a huge amount of information, and then someone else where there's a line, it's a tantalising line that it'd be great to know more about, but you don't, you don't have it. So, um, like, unfortunately, a lot of this, like the websites like the Trinity College website or archive.org, give a lot of information. But I would say, unfortunately, even the National Library, I use Trinity Library quite a lot. Uh, for this, and you, you'd kind of need an academic library for some of the stuff, because but a lot of it is increasingly being released online. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. It's a bit wide and varied. Uh, were rats and fleas a contributing factor to the spread of it from ships? Yeah. It was, it, sorry, I should have said that actually. Um, the disease is spread through the fleas on rats, and those fleas can then obviously move on to other uh, hosts as well. There has been debate around this. There's generally, though, there's, there's very, it's the way the disease is considered to have moved. It, rats do give um, the mobility to it. It can spread in other forms, but how it moves from place to place is through the fleas, usually on rats, but sometimes if they were able to get into. Um, trade goods, they could move without the rats. Um, then in urban areas, it can develop into that pneumonic form that I spoke about, infecting the lungs, the disease then can start to move from person to person, and that allows a very rapid uh, infection, uh, level of infection, whereas previously you wouldn't have had that. Um, but um, yeah, it, like the, the problem is rats, and uh, there's more importantly the fleas on rats. Thank you. 
the uh, map that you showed early there of the spread of the like death, yep. I noticed that Poland and some surrounding areas are largely unaffected. Yep. Is there an explanation for that? Um, not an adequate one. Um, they do get generally just over time places will be eventually um, affected. When it says relatively unaffected, it doesn't mean they weren't affected at all. Um, I would argue probably Gaelic Ireland was as unaffected as parts of Poland. Um, just this map is a very probably Anglo-centric map, so it doesn't really account for Ireland. The northwest of Ireland is probably affected. But um, it's coming back to that reason why this is happening is not clear. It could have to do with uh, to, to, topography. Topography, thank you. Um, there are reasons, like I've read stuff about um, the, the, the marshes in southern Poland, uh, there's like there's certain aspects, there's certain features in the landscape, like high ground or societies that are very rural, which help give a certain degree of protection. There's lots of cases though why that wouldn't be the case, or there's lots of reasons why that wouldn't be the case. Um, some people have argued as well it's about the type of rat. So there's two types of rat, and the fleas, and one of those rats is the, is the is what spreads the disease. But if the other type of rat is present, um, then the disease wouldn't spread. Again, it's not satisfactory. The issue of the old blood group is something again that I've seen raised about uh, Poland as well. That the higher, the more, the, the more people with an old blood group in a society means that it's less likely to be spread. But I, I don't have I, what I'm saying to you. I guess it's not a, a, a satisfactory answer for that. Hi, um, I was just interested there when you made the comment about the you know the way that the Karen Norman structure started to collapse here um, and you know the sort of the, they've done a lot of crusading and things by then how, how chronologically how did that kind of fall into place with the general collapse of the Normans you know, and, and Normandy being sort of reconsumed back into the France as a country and, and the king taking control of Normandy as opposed to being a kind of a dukedom um. So while this is all going on, there's a, there's a, there is a, a struggle going on over um, the north of France in the open chapters of the Hundred Years' War, which begins in 1337. It's largely unrelated to what's going on in Ireland. The, I think Ireland is pretty unique in this point. It's not totally unique, but um, the impact of that earlier, the Bruce invasion, the famine, and Rinderpest in Ireland is absolutely devastating. Um, I go into much greater detail in the book about why that, or what happened in the aftermath there's a series of high-level assassinations which shows society starting to unravel and there's lots of evidence of tension building up. Now some of this can be traced back even further into as early as 1270 and may even relate to the uneven nature of the Norman conquest of Ireland back as even a century before that. But you know, you could trace anything back to the beginning of time. But I think certainly after 1315 there'd been problems set down so society was already fraying the central authority of society was definitely in a major crisis there was um, I didn't go into it uh, there but there was a huge uh, dispute in the 1320s between the Earl of Desmond or the future Earl of Desmond and the powers in Waterford where a huge section of South Kilkenny was just burned in this dispute and it's a, a dispute between two families that gets more or less completely out of hand but the government cannot get enough forces together to go down and stop them doing this and that becomes a feature of life in the 14th century, that these big feuds break out 
and n n no side is afraid of what can, will happen to them because they know that royal power is so distant. So what I would say is that the Black Death is kind of like, um, I guess, a weak person being punched. You know, it's already a lot of it. But I don't think it's really related to what the politics of what's going on in Normandy and the struggle that's going on. I think that's more about the rise of the Kingdom of England and the rise of the Kingdom of France and uh, the identities being formed around that. Anybody else? Then? Just, just a, a simple question, really. Why was it called Black Death, do you think? Um, because uh, from internal bleeding, the skin turns black. Uh, so that, can, that happens quite a lot. The patient's skin will turn black. But it wasn't, in the Middle Ages, it wasn't called the Black Death. There's a couple of names for it in the, uh, in the Middle Ages as the Great Pestilence or the Great Mortality. Um, the Black Death is a later name but it generally refers to a kind of a the, the darkening that people get under the skin, or it can, it can be in dots as well, but it's, yeah, that's generally where that comes from. No, I was just wondering, as you kind of went through your research and the writing of your book, um, is, you know, did it ever sort of, of what came to your mind about can, how can I, any of this... Um, inform us about what's happening today or what could happen or you know is there any sort of um, relevance we can draw um, from from this particular time in history to our, our present time when so much is happening over the world and we know what's happening in the US and all of that um, I think it's very relevant I think it's um, there's a lot to be learned from it um, I don't know if there are that positive messages um, I think society is definitely more fragile than we would think and it doesn't take a whole lot to uh, tailspin it into um, quite extreme violence. Um, Norman society had been violent in the 13th century but the level of violence that takes hold from 1350 onwards is even for that society's standards quite extreme. Um, in terms of the Black Death itself, there's aspects around it that uh, rumour is probably one of the most dangerous things that happens around these events. It's not actually the disease itself. So for example in um, Central Europe in particular but in the, in the Rhine Valley and um, pretty much a huge amount of the Jews of the Rhine Valley are um, put to death because a, a rumour goes around that the Jews have caused the Black Death. And even when the Pope comes out and says Jews are dying like anybody else, still these killings go on. And that is that's something, or um, for example, um, erroneous beliefs about what the plague is caused by. Some people believe it's caused by um, the wrath of God. So then, if, if you believe that, it's a very logical thing to gather in places like St. Mullins and thousands of people flocking to the, somewhere like St. Mullins because you think they're going to get protection. It's obviously a disastrous thing to do in terms of plague because what you want in a situation like that is people not to meet up. Um, I would say one uplifting thing that I came across is, and there's lots of examples of this in the book actually, uh, human beings are generally quite positive to each other, I think, even in spite of what I've said for the last hour. Um, but in the aftermath of the Black Death, there's lots of cases of people rallying around each other to survive into the future. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have been able to survive without helping each other. And I think that is 
quite deep in us and you can see it even in the greatest moments of crisis the black death itself while it runs does undermine that because no one wants to touch anybody else obviously but afterwards there's lots of cases and I can go through them in the book of children being helped children orphans are being helped or towns um, doing things where all the merchants help each other to try and get through that dark period after the plague so um, there are lessons positive and negative there's a lot of negative ones though Anyone else? Uh, I've never asked uh, John to propose a report of thanks to Thanks very much. Thanks, Bertie. Uh, thanks, Finn. Um, something struck me, what you said there, a strange silence descending over the landscape. It reminded me of the Mask of the Red Death, Edgar Allan Poe, which I suppose is an allegory of black, black, the Black Death. And um, you can just imagine it, sure. You can imagine people not moving and, and death on the landscape. Um, I was particularly taken with your, I suppose, James Burkean connections that you, you brought to the, the, to the story. The, the way that the, 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 pre, the, the, the pre-plague crisis occasioned, occasioned things like Petronella, Alice Hitler's mm. um, servant that was probably responsible for that. And I like... I like when connections like that are made, you know. Um, also, I think what was really striking was how the Black Death probably caused the rise of the, of the major families in, mm. in Ireland, like the, the Almonds and, and, and the Kildares and the Fitzgerald Desmonds, that it really gave them a central place in, in, in Irish society and in the leadership. So I thought that was an unintended consequence that I wouldn't have, I suppose, realised in the past. Um, in relation to Carlo, um, he gives a great background to Carlo, Carlo Town, and I suppose we're very proud here of the castle, which is Premier Norman Castle. I think it's recognised as a very, as a very um, unique early example of a Norman castle. Um, and St Mullins and St James as well, we were just talking about today, Seven Paul's, we were saying about them all jumping in the well, and <laughs> it wasn't probably a good idea, all right. Um, uh, also, um, the whole uh, the description of Carlo after the Black Death, you know, and, and strategic position of Carlo. And I'm not sure if, it's, um, if it was Kieran Brady or Rory Rappel who wrote about Carlo's unique that Carlo Castle and Lockton Bridge Castle faced, faced east to face, to, face the, to face the burns and, and the tools mm. because it was, it, was, it was surrounded on both sides. And that unique strategic position of Carlo, which carried on, which, which, which meant it was so important in the centuries after that, that Carlo and Lockton Bridge were strategic crossing points on the barrow and they really controlled the whole of South Leinster and access to Munster as well for the Dublin administration. So it was a really, really interesting lecture. And I've been looking forward to it for months because I'm a big fan of, of the Irish History Podcast and I would encourage everybody here to uh, go to iTunes and, and subscribe to it and particularly download your series on the Normans. I, I was just saying earlier on I found uh, um, William de Gross a really fascinating and entertaining character. Um, so I'd like to wish you well with your book. Thank you. Hopefully... When you write your next book, uh, I won't reveal what the book we were talking later on. You might give us the premiere uh, run out of it here in Carlow. We'd be delighted to have you back. And um, I'd like to pause the vote of thanks for you. Thanks very much. Thank